Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Buckle up for a couple of thrillers that will keep you on the edge of your seat until the very last page. This is Chapter 216 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa T. And coming up, Catherine McKenzie tells us why she wants women to be more like men when they're out in the world. And thriller writer Karen Rose shares why she hasn't touched a hurricane cocktail in over 20 years. A secretive, all-female society is the driving force in Please Join Us, the latest thriller from author Catherine McKenzie. And while such a group totally seems like the stuff of fiction, it's not. Catherine kicked off our interview by telling me about the real invite she got from a clandestine women's group when she was still working as a high-powered attorney. Yeah, I got an email one day from an organization that said that I had been recommended by somebody, they didn't say who, inviting me to apply to join them. And there was a website and there was an application. And I wrote back and I said, well, who who referred me (laughs) for this? And they were like, well, we can't tell you that, but we can tell you that there's lots of famous women in here and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it was so many, it was just very vague. And, and, um, but I did actually start filling out the application and I, don't know, I got distracted at work or something. And then I went home and I was telling my husband about it. I'm like, yeah, I might go because it had two experiences. And he's like, what are you? No, what? <laughs> and I'm like, well, why not? Maybe I'll get a book out of it. I was joking, you know, but I was like, at the very least, I'm like, what are they going to do? They're not going to kill me, you know, like, and he was like, no, that's insane. And the next day I got an email again that was like, hey, you didn't finish filling out this application. Do you want to finish filling it out? And I was like, well, that's a little creepy. Um, and I think I got emailed two or three more times, and which is why it's stuck in my head, I think. It was actually, and those details are not in the book, um, but I think that's more why it's stuck in my head because there were these weird automatic follow-ups. And there's more of those now, but four or five years ago, that was less common that things would do that. Like now I find, you know, with BookPub, if you look at a book and you don't buy it, they're like, did you buy this book? Like five minutes later. Right. But, but back then that was a little strange. So it just sort of stuck in my head. And a year later, right before the pandemic, when I was sort of thinking about book ideas, um, I pitched two ideas to my agent at the time. And she was like, yeah, write that one. That was super interesting. So. I don't think there's a professional woman out there who wouldn't be, you know, intrigued by the idea 
of a, a, a woman's collective whose purpose is to help women succeed and, and do it uh, the way the boys would and also to like fight fight against that kind of boys club perception that you find in a lot of professions. Yeah, well, and I had actually started a women's organization um, in Montreal, a lawyer's women referral network. It wasn't a secret, but that was the purpose. It was to be, you know, because the boys club still existed. And the, there was this sort of one mantra in the group, which is if you have work to refer, think of a woman first, as opposed to a man, because that's what men do. They think of men first. <laughs> and a lot of women think of men first. And um, so I had started that with another um, lawyer probably four or five years before then. So, um, you know, that I did do that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, without the sinister parts, it was it was just a good thing, not a bad thing. <laughs> right. So your book is a thriller, not a self-help right, book. Right. Of course. So I have to change. <laughs> Everything has to take a dark turn. You know, it's like. No, no good deed goes unpunished um, in the thriller world, right? So, so yeah. why don't we back up a little bit and you tell yeah. us what your story is about? So, the main character Nicole is thirty nine, and her career, which she's been very mono focused on, um, she's married, but she doesn't really have very many friends, and and she's decided not to have children. She's very, very focused on her career, and it hits this massive speed bump. Um, that comes out of left field. And so she's left feeling very destabilized. And that's right when she gets this invitation. And so unlike me, uh, she ignores the hesitations of her husband and goes um, to a retreat in Colorado where she meets um, five other women and the two women who started the organization um, and, and learns that the organization is is divided into what they call prides. And it's called Panthera Leo, which is the biological name for lions. And so it's based on the idea that, you know, in a pride of lions is the women that do the lion's share of the work. Um, and that's where that expression comes from. Um, and so they're divided into these silos of five group, five women, and they're, they're supposed to help one another. So if they ask for a favor, they're supposed to say yes. And the favors start out benign, but when the book opens, um, Nicole has been called in the middle of the night to one of the members' apartments, and she's sitting in a bathtub, and there's blood on the floor. And the fun and obviously <laughs> things don't turn out exactly the way Nicole thought they were going to. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, did you that this idea came to you before the pandemic? Did you write it during the pandemic? I wrote it during the pandemic. Yeah, I started writing it. Um, so that meeting that I had was on May six, March six, twenty twenty. I was in New York City. Um, I met my editor for the first time that day. And, um, and, and so I started writing it in probably the next couple of weeks because to sell a book, when you already have a contract, you have to do, you know, 50 or 75 pages and, and a bit of an outline. So I, I did that in the first month of the pandemic. And then I didn't write anything for four or five months. <laughs> um, as I think all of us are, our lives sort of narrowed in focus. Uh, but I did end up um, leaving the practice of law in August 2020. And so I wrote most of this book in the fall of 2020. Yeah. I, I only asked because there were, there were certain um, things that the, happened to the characters or certain feelings that they have that it feels right. like it was written by somebody who was sitting at home during lockdown and you really could only get that experience if, if you um, had experienced it and were and yeah, at that yeah, time. I, get that. I mean, I think I did, 
The, the pandemic exists in the book. This is set sort of post-pandemic, I guess, you know, at a time when we thought there was going to be a post-pandemic as opposed to just life adjusting. But but yeah, there is reference to that for sure. And and that feeling of being cut off. There's a um, lot of talk yeah. in the book about what men do and, and, and what they can get away with. Now, do you right. think if your story were male characters instead of female characters, that things would have unfolded a little differently or it, you know, or would they have succeeded the way men succeed in doing things? Interesting question. I mean, I like to write my books with women characters in the roles that men often play in books. And, you know, I think in books and movies and TV, often it's getting better, but often women are side characters and there's one of them. And in this book, all the characters are women and they're the men are the side characters um, that are there to serve the women's story. So um, I don't know if it would have turned out differently, but I, I think the thought process that Nicole goes through is for sure um, as a result of her experiences that are, I think, universal. You know, I'm, I mean, fond is maybe the wrong word, but I often say that me too, um, you know, it, it hasn't come to the legal profession. And it's not because there are not stories. Everybody has stories, right? And and in all professions, like it it hit some professions and reverberated through the culture, but it doesn't mean that every profession has had the clean out and the change in culture that should have happened um because of me too. You think legal world it, it it'll come late or will it ever come to there just because of what people do and 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 you know the first person you go to when you when you want to file a complaint like that is you go to a lawyer right yeah I I think I think the problem that I saw in private practice is I mean there's many problems but one of the main ones is that it's a culture that values making money and so so long as the person you know the bad actor is bringing a lot of money into the firm, they find it hard to make the decision to be like, no, we're going to forego this person who brings us in millions of dollars because he's made a couple of women feel uncomfortable, you know? And I think there's still a culture where in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, when I started practicing law, it was a lot more overt, right? There were the old dudes who like felt it was totally fine to slap you in the butt or say disgusting things, you know, to your face and tell dirty jokes. Like there was this one older lawyer who would start telling dirty jokes the minute I was, so he was just telling them because I was there, you know, like he was doing it on purpose to make me feel uncomfortable. And a lot of that behavior has gone away, but it's become more insidious in a way, right? Because it's, it now it's more hidden and it's harder to fight against something that's less overt. I don't think it's the profession, the act of defending people in those situations. That's the issue. I think it's more, the money that's involved and what's valued and rewarded and the more hours you can bill and the more clients you can bring in, the more you're valued in that system. And that is a system that's inherently going to favor men um, in lots of ways. Um, a lot of it to do with childcare, but not exclusively. And that's, you know, you know that's where we meet Nicole. She's, she's at this yeah. place in her firm where she's basically told you haven't earned enough points to to keep your standing where you are and you need to be doing yeah. more. Yeah, now you're going to be demoted basically. Yeah. And you know, once people's perceptions of you change in that environment, it's hard to turn them around. And so I I think she's so vulnerable because like I said, this is everything that she's worked for in her life and she feels like 
there isn't anything more that she can do. She's given all her time. She's done all the things she's supposed to. She's checked all the boxes and it still isn't enough. And that's a really vulnerable place to, to find someone who is a type A overachiever with goals to, you know, to feel like you can, I think Nicole always thought that she could control everything by just working harder and being the best and being perfect. And when things outside of her control, like in her case, her, her biggest client goes bankrupt. And so she didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, her bill sort of dried up overnight. And so she's being punished for that in the partnership, you know, which is something that happens. And, and so now she feels completely destabilized and like, what's going to happen to her? This is, this is all she has. And then on top of it, um, she and her husband are about to lose their apartment, which is a family apartment. And so now it's like her two pillars of her life are, and not that she can't afford another house. Of course she can, but you know, it's a sentimental thing. Like the only thing that she's sentimental about is being taken away and her job. And then something comes along that's like, have you like speaks exactly to her fear? You know, like, do you feel like you aren't where you're supposed to be in your career? Is it, did you feel like maybe it's something outside of your control that's causing this? Well, you're right. It is, (laughs) you know, and we can help you. And then they do help her. They help her find an amazing new apartment and they bring in this huge new file and all of a sudden things are looking better. But of course it comes with a cost. So, I mean, it's one of those, if it looks too good to be true. It probably is. Of course. I mean, and again, it's a thriller, right? Like people are. Yeah, it has know, to be I, too good I, to be true. Otherwise, you yeah, wouldn't have a story. I'm, writing, I'm, I'm always like, look, books are about conflict. So you're, you're not going to follow someone through like the most amazing day of their life. Like <laughs> that's not an interesting novel, you know, or even a mundane day in their life. It's like you need to throw them into the bad stuff. So while there is like a strong female empowerment vibe to your story, mm-hmm. I also get the sense that there's a message here that women shouldn't underestimate themselves. And I'm kind of curious, besides really entertaining readers with this story, is there something else you want them to take away? I think what women often discount themselves. So like, and this is, there's proven research about this, but women ask for less than they're worth. They take less than they're worth they second guess themselves in ways that I think men just in general don't. And, you know, I'm generalizing of course, but the, the research that always really struck me is they, they took a bunch of people and put them in a room, evenly divided between men and women. And they told them to have a conversation about something for an hour and they recorded them. And at the end of it, they asked both groups who spoke more the men or the women and both the men and the women said the women spoke more, but in fact, the men spoke more. The men spoke 60% of the time and the women spoke 40% of the time. So, but what does that say? That says that we think we take up too much space, even when we're not taking up as much space as men, right? What does that say about us? So I think, you know, my advice is like, and I've, I've said this to female friends over the years who care, you know, they'd be concerned about something to do with their kids. And I'm like, does your, would your husband care about that? And they're like, no, I'm like, then why do you, you know, like you're both its parents, <laughs> You know, and I've always found it fascinating that people, you know, a couple comes home from the hospital with the exact same information about their child on day one, right? And then there's like the then the diagram that goes in like opposite directions. It's like the mom knows everything, and the husband, if the mom goes out, is like calling 
while she's out with her friends, like, where's the cough syrup? Where's the, 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 it's like, that's your child. You're not babysitting. It's your kid, you know? So I think that is my advice, which I have not always followed in my life, but it's just act, be like a man in the world. Like just do it. You know, what's well, the worst that can happen? That's the one I took away from your book. It's like, you know, we, we don't follow that advice as often as we should, but I think in those times when we're thinking about it, I'm going to think back to the characters in Patherio, even though, you know, maybe some of them aren't the ideal role models for women. Yeah, some of them made some bad choices. They made for some sure. bad choices. But <laughs> in the end, I mean, I think they made choices like a man in their position would have made. Yeah. And you know what? I, the thing also is like, I think women think, oh, well, if we're nice, then it's we'll just get what we want. And it's like that. No, that, that it, in fact, no you're still going to be called the bitch or whatever. So like, so don't like, stop worrying about what people, I think we, we care about what people think about us too much too. I'm not saying be mean and be horrible and be, you know, (laughs) plot murder or whatever, obviously. But, but I think like we need a culture shift where we need everyone to just be like, it's fine to ask for what you want. And, you know, I really do think there is a generational divide between um, you know, I'm Gen X and I saw it with millennials and zoomers and, but, you know, one thing I do admire in that generation is I think they are better at asking for what they want. I'm not sure that they always understand like the long-term problem of asking <laughs> and getting what they want in the short term, you know, that's another issue, but I, I did always admire that. Like, well, why can't I just do this when I'm 27 years old and you didn't do it until you were 40? What, why? You know, and it's like, well, <laughs> like, cause I'm still trying to do it <laughs> and you'll be taking my place, you know, or whatever it is. Right. But, um, but, uh, but yeah. And I, I think we need more of that, frankly, again, this is supposed to be an entertainment book and enjoy it. But I, I, another theme in here, and I really do believe this is it's not until the, the good men, which I do believe most men are good stand up against the bad men as well. If you hear a man and you're a man, but a man saying crappy things about women, say something. Don't laugh. Don't be like, oh yeah. Yeah. My wife's like that too, or whatever it is, you know, like, just be like, dude, what are you talking about? That's terrible. Don't talk like you're about your wife like that. Or don't, you know what I mean? Like, like, I think, um, Nicole says in the book, like, we're tired, you know, <laughs> like we're tired of being the only ones fighting this battle, right? Like, like, and it shouldn't be on us to fix men and police men's behavior. Like, right. And so oftentimes themselves. it is, right? It's it totally yeah. is. It totally is. You shouldn't wear you know, that if you don't want the attention. You shouldn't act that way if you don't want somebody to say something. Even just like, oh, he's pulling your hair because he likes you. It's like, well, why is that okay? Back to grade school, you know? right? <laughs> He's in chasing you around That's the schoolyard. That's where it starts. Know? Oh, he hit you. It's because he likes you. Oh, <laughs> right. he pulled your hair. It's because he's like, always oh, making fun of you because he likes you. It's like, hold on a second. That's None not of those cool. Those behaviors are okay. <laughs> right. It's not cool. <laughs> you know? So, is the subject of your next book going to be as weighty? <laughs> uh, in a different way, I think. Um, it's uh, called Have You Seen Her? It's set in the search and rescue world. Um, it's not based on the Gabby Petito story, but it, it did come to me when when that was all over the media. Because I, I, my sister and brother-in-law worked in search and rescue in Yosemite for five years. And I've long wanted to set a book in that world. And um, so it's the main character is a search and rescue worker who is 
running away from something and has gone to work in Yosemite. And um, then a couple goes missing um, and it goes on from there. So different themes, um, but definitely some of the things that came up in that case, which is, you know, why do we only pay so much attention when it's a pretty blonde woman that's missing? And then, you know, the other stuff with the police ignoring all of the signs that she was being abused by him and, and again, all in a like fun <laughs> thrillery package. It, it sounds like it's going to be another page turner because yeah, this one had me turner. like compulsively turning pages and blowing past bedtime to try to finish all and things. find out what was going on. So thank you. Thank you. We've been talking with Catherine McKenzie. The new book is Please Join Us. Thank you so much for your time today, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mystery, music, mufalada, man-eating alligators. There's really only one place on earth I could be describing, and that's New Orleans. Author Karen Rose captures all of that and more in her new crime novel series set in the Big Easy. We chatted about book one, Quarter to Midnight. You've written books set in Baltimore, Cincinnati, Chicago, Philly, among some other cities. And in this new series, you turn your eye to New Orleans. What drew you to this city for this story? Well, I was I was coming to the end of my Sacramento series, and I was actually in New Orleans for a uh, for a book convention, book lovers convention, and this was in 2019. And I thought, yes, this would be the per- perfect city because it's got, you know, it, it it already has the setting for romantic suspense. You have the you know you have the basic romance of New Orleans the, you know, the jazz, the food, you know, all the wonderful iconic things that make it a great city. You also have, um, you know, the, the, you also have the opportunity for suspense because, you know, it's a big city. Um, it has, uh, it, it has a, you know, it has a history. Um, and it also has a lot of, uh, you know, it has a lot of things nearby. It has the bayou. Um, it has the Gulf, you know, which, which opens up, a lot of opportunities, but mostly I just really love New Orleans. And I kept thinking we could go on research trips and we could eat a lot of really good food. And then COVID happened. I didn't get to go on any of my research trips, but I had been to New Orleans several times before and I really love the city. So tell us a little bit more about this particular story and the start of the series. Well, this series is a little different because usually I have um, a core of police officers you know, who are, who are, who are the, basically the backbone of the series. This time I have a group of private investigators and it's called Broussard Investigations run by a guy named Burke Broussard, and he'll get his own story later in the series. But uh, everyone in his group are either ex-military, ex-law enforcement or both. And in the case of, uh, in the case of Quarter to Midnight, Molly Sutton is the heroine. She's Burke's right hand. And she has uh, 
Uh, she has been both uh, served with him in the Marine Corps, and she's been in law enforcement in the North Carolina uh, State Bureau of Investigation. And a, a family tragedy has uh, caused her to um, has caused her to leave law enforcement. And Burke said, "Come work with me," and she did. So that's how she ends up in New Orleans. Um, and uh, the the hero of the story is Gabe Hebert. And Gabe is a chef. He has a restaurant in the French Quarter. And his father was a police officer. In fact, he was Burke's partner when they were both with NOPD. His dad's retired. Um, and in the beginning of the book, his dad, the reader knows his dad is murdered because that's in the prologue. Um, but it's staged to look like a suicide. But Gabe knows it's not. So he comes to Burke for help. Burke pairs him up with Molly and together they get to dig down deep. Now, your story, too, because you can't really talk about New Orleans nowadays without mentioning Katrina and right. the, the, that deadly storm plays a large role in your plot. It did. What kind of research did you do to get the those particular details right? There is a lot on the Internet about Katrina. I also talked to people who lived through it. Um, I talked to law enforcement who lived through it, who are part of the rescue operations. Um, I talked with uh, um, I talked with individuals who lived in the area, and in fact, one of the there's there's a detail in the book, and it was just so horrifying for me because I live in hurricane country. I live in Florida, and you know we we get hurricanes, but it's not this it's not the same kind of um, risk as you know with 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 the Katrina, how the, you know, with, with the way the levees broke. And he said that there was one, uh, one of his friends had lived, you know, in an area, it was just South of the, of the ninth ward and the ninth ward got a lot of attention because, you know, the devastation was so complete, but there were other neighborhoods that were equally as devastated. Um, then this particular friend of my, my source had lived there said that they heard what sounded like a bomb went off, like a huge explosion. And it was the levee bursting. And within three minutes, three minutes, the water had gotten all the way up to the attic. And after Hurricane Betsy in, in, this, in the mid-60s, people started keeping hatchets in the attics of their homes because in, in Betsy, they, would, they had retreated to the attics, but people couldn't get out. So afterward, and they drowned in their own attics. So after Betsy, um, people started keeping hatchets in the attics. And someone had mentioned that to me when I first started writing the book. But this kind of it, it came together with this source's story that his friend, that's how they got to the roof of their of their home was because they had an, a hatchet, an axe stored, you know, in their uh, in their attic. And it was they had three minutes until the waters. I mean, and that is that is terrifyingly that is terrifying short amount of time to prepare to run for your life. So um, and that that's a detail that ends up in there. But, yeah, I did. There's also a lot of. Uh, there's also a lot of websites that show the before and the after. They talk about the the neighborhoods where the government had to go in and um, declare houses that you know had to be torn down. Um, there's a lot of statistics about the people who came, you know, who who left New Orleans and never came back because you know they just rebuilt elsewhere. And uh, you know, and so and you know, of course, there were the the people who left New Orleans and went to Houston which one of the characters in this book has done. So yeah, there's a lot out there. And so I was kind of used a combination of sources. Now, in addition to your private investigators, you do have your Houston cast of characters. And yes. I have to say, I love that group. And I particularly loved Willa May. She's probably <laughs> you know, my favorite in the bunch. Her and Cicely, they're like really my favorite in the bunch. <laughs> 
I love them too. And they were not in the, they were not in the, in the outline. I love it when characters pop up like that and they're not in the outline. And all of a sudden there's Willa May and she was driving her minivan and they all get in. <laughs> and, and she has talents that they didn't even know she possessed. Yes. Well, I think, uh, I think um, uh, her friend knows, you know, Xavier's mother knows, but the, the rest of the group, they're, they're like, wow, I mean, you, you've always just been Miss Willamay and we've always just mowed your lawn, but you've got all these, you've got skills. So they, I, I thought that they made the, this story of yours, which it's, it's a giant cat and mouse story. We have someone who witnessed a murder during Katrina, during that horror harrowing experience you were just talking about about the attics being flooded and people trying to escape and now being tracked down all these years later and it was just it was fun to go along on the ride with them I really enjoyed them and uh, you know at the beginning you know I didn't know who Willa Mae was going to be she just kind of blossomed under you know just just blossomed on the page and you know originally she would just kind of be you know the 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 mother's best friend and kind of you know comedic relief but she turned out to be a core part of the book, and I loved her so much. You mentioned that your other main character is, is Gabe, and he's a mm-hmm. chef. And yes. like you said, you can't talk about New Orleans without talking about food. And it really is an integral part of your story. And I was hungry and yearning for beignets the entire time <laughs> I was reading it. Well, you know, because we couldn't go you know, to New Orleans because of COVID, my husband is a very good cook. And so he he really started making a lot of Cajun food while I was writing. So he he tried to recreate the mood for me, but we had a lot of yummy food. Any hurricanes in the mix? Well, there's a funny story about hurricanes and that well, it was the first time I ever went to New Orleans it was in 2001. And it was for a romance writer convention. And uh, um, it was one night and we hadn't eaten in a long time. And we all went out for dinner after a big ceremony. And uh, um, the we went to Pat O'Brien's because everybody told us we should. And we all ordered hurricanes, um, except for our designated walker, which we were so glad we ended up having. <laughs> and I could just tell you that you should not drink a hurricane on an empty stomach on a hot August night, because it tastes like, it, it, it honestly tastes like fruit punch, tastes like Hawaiian punch. And I downed that thing entirely too fast. And um, I did not drink another hurricane for 20 years. After. Oh, no. <laughs> I still have a souvenir cup somewhere just as a reminder of my, you know, of my, my mighty fall. But uh, yeah, it's uh, there are potent drinks. They're I think five shots of rum in a hurricane and they're delicious. They're absolutely delicious. They really are. I will testify to that. I ha- I maybe had one or two in my time down in New Orleans. <laughs> I don't think you can really, if you, if, if unless you're a, you know, a non-drinker, which is, I kind of became after that. <laughs> For quite a while. You know what? New Orleans can do that too to you. It can have the complete opposite effect. You go down there for a party and you come back stone cold sober. <laughs> I did. I did. But uh, yeah, the, the the woman who was our designated walker, we had we had met up with her, you know, for this convention and, and became friends. But she told everybody, she goes, I was with an engineer and a lawyer and you wouldn't have known. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I didn't know. And then I knew and I never drank. I've never had one from there again. I feel like you should have one to celebrate this book coming out. But I will trust you in knowing that you know your limits and maybe you (laughs) should be sipping on something else. Well, after afterwards, my husband took my my, our daughter and my my other assistant there and they they split one three ways. They looked at (laughs) me like, oh, my God, you drank a whole one. It was hot in my defense. (laughs) 
was August. It was hot. So I know your next book, we don't immediately get to jump back into to this group of characters. You're actually taking us to a different city, right? I am. I am. So I'm, um, readers have always been saying, write faster. So I'm writing faster. And um, I will now have two series out a year. So we'll continue with New Orleans. Um, that'll be a summer book. Um, and we'll, after, you know, Gabe and Molly, we'll go back to New Orleans again next summer. Um, and I can say now that that's Val and Kai's book. Um, but uh, the, um, the new series is set in San Diego. And it's a continuing series with the same hero and heroine throughout. So I've never done that before. So it's going to be fun. Um, I've enjoyed writing the first book. It's called Cold-Blooded Liar. And uh, the heroine is Kit McKittrick. And she's a homicide detective in San Diego. And the hero is Sam Reeves. And he is a psychologist. He's a, he's a criminal psychologist. And he does profiles for the police department. Um, except not in the first book. So it's kind of how they meet and how they, you know, how it's kind of their origin story kind of thing. But uh, I've enjoyed writing it. It's a, it's a, uh, the first book is more of a traditional mystery. It has got some suspense, but it's, it's a, but I had really a lot of fun. I hope readers love it. What is it about, about mystery crime fiction that keeps you going? Well, you know, I, I, I didn't, when I first started writing, I didn't write thrillers on purpose. Um, I wrote more women's fiction, but it was the it was the, the, the story that I really kind of cut my teeth on was uh, ended up being my first book, Don't Tell, but I, I went through several iterations. In the first three iterations, it was women's fiction, um, but it was about a woman who had escaped her abusive husband. And in all iterations, the prologue stayed the same and the way she gets back at her husband stays the same, the way she brings him down. Um, and when I signed with an agent, she read the prologue and she said, you know, you've got a suspenseful voice. Have you ever thought of writing suspense? And I was like, no, I'll try it. And um, I, so I did, I kind of researched it, figured out, you know, what was, how were my favorite, because I read suspense. I watched, you know, mysteries on TV. I was a law and order junkie. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, how can I do this? What, what makes us successful? suspense. And so what I did was I, you know, I, after researching and I went back and I rewrote the book actually two more times. So again, for people who are just starting out, don't give up. I wrote that first book five times. And um, that's kind of, I found my, I kind of found my niche, you know, and it was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. I love the puzzle, the, you know, the puzzle of it. I've always loved puzzles. I've always loved math. And there's a certain amount of calculation involved, you know, in bringing all the storylines together. And so, you know, it, for me, it just kind of, it kind of clicked and I haven't looked back. I think you have another little piece for, for new writers in there, which is maybe what you're, you're starting out and you think you're going to write is not ex exactly what you're going to end up writing. Then that's very true. Very true. And it was funny because once I, once I figured that out and I always tell the story that I, what I did, because I, I was an engineer in my previous life and, uh, uh, it still comes back every now and again, I turn around and I do something that is very engineering, but um, I said, well, what makes a successful suspense? And so I took one, I took the one book I had read recently that surprised me because I'm never surprised at the end of it. I mean, I'm like, I can name that villain in two pages or, you know, two minutes into a movie, I can tell you who did it. And it's, it's, it's part of the game. But for this book, I got to the end and I was like, no way. It was kind of like the, you know, six sets when you get to the end is like, no way is he dead. Uh, and you go back and you look at all the clues and yeah, you know, you, you could see it when you know. But so what I did was I read the book, not backwards word for word, but chapter for chapter. 
looking for where this author had dropped the clues. And um, what I realized when I got to the beginning of the book was that she hadn't tried to hide any of the clues. They were all there in plain sight. I just cared too much about the characters to go looking for them. And I was like, oh, I can do that. So that's what I did. You know, as I, I, I sometimes I, I make an effort to hide the clues, but most of the times they're out there in plain sight. And I love it when a reader, you know, contacts me and says, I was so shocked. It wasn't who I thought. And I thought, no way. And then I went back and I looked and like, yeah, it could happen. So for me, that was, you know, that, that was, uh, it was a key, it was, it was a kind of a key learning about myself and how to do and how to do the work. It's funny, I'm thinking back to quarter to midnight and your, your bad guys, they're really out there right from the beginning and you don't hide too much, but you're still in suspense trying to figure out who exactly are they and what game are they playing at? Yes. And thank you. I'm, 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 I like, I like keeping people on the edge of their seat because, you know, every genre has, uh, has a structure. You know, I, I don't like the word formula, but they have a structure. And in my books, you know, there's suspense. There's a, there's a villain. He does bad things. And, and I can pretty much guarantee at the end, he's going to be caught and brought to justice in one way or another. And, uh, you know, I, but, but the journey for me, the journey is the fun part of it. So, you know, if you read a book that's, you know, a romance, you're, you know, that the good guys are going to be okay in the end, but if it's a romantic suspense, you're really just not sure how many people are going to have to pay innocent and guilty, you know, before the end. So I think that that's, that's part of the, I think that the not knowing that that surprise is part of the appeal. Before I let you go, I have uh, one more question. You've, you've set books in, in so many different American cities have you ever stumbled across a place like New Orleans that has such a natural way of disposing a body in gators? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I know that there are a lot of places in Northern California wilderness where you could you could drop a body and it wouldn't be found ever. Um, but that's really not the same as throwing him to a gator in New Orleans. <laughs> and I've seen some of those gators up close. They're no joke. <laughs> no, they're big. Well, again, I live in Florida. And I, I remember there was one time we were having some work done on the house. And had we had an electrician in the house. And he was, he was you know, a nice enough guy. He was kind of a little rough around the edges. And and I was talking to, I, I got to the point where they had, they were there so often, I guess, kind of forgot they were there and was talking to, to somebody about my book and, you know, disposing of bodies and, 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 and people at first give me really strange looks and then they realize I'm an author and then they go about their business. Well, this guy chimes in. He was like, well, if you want to hide a body, you go to, um, you can go to Mayaka State Park. He says they've got quicksand and gators. And he says it like he knows. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> I didn't ask how we knew, but uh, you know, and there's a gator that lives, you know, periodically in the pond at the end of our cul-de-sac. So yeah, you know, it's, it, it's a, it is a pretty natural way, but I have one more, one more funny story. Well, it's not funny. It's an interesting story, but about a stupid, stupid villain. Um, I <laughs> Lay was it on, on us. My, I was on my way to lunch uh, with a friend and I, I was going the way I always went, which was kind of a back way, you know, into the shopping center. And um, my way was blocked and it was blocked by a lot of law enforcement, flashing lights, lots of vehicles and divers. And there are ponds everywhere, you know, where I live in Florida. It's not a big deal. And I got to the restaurant and we, we you know, we asked to look at the news. The, the divers were there because someone had actually murdered his mother. And this was the end, at the end of the story we found out. He had murdered his mother 
chopped her up and thrown her, distributed her amongst the pawns in the area. But he was stupid. And he actually tied, he, he actually tied her when he, he distributed her amongst the pawns. He did so in hefty bags. And they all floated to the surface. He just assumed the gators would get to get to her through the hefty bags. I guess maybe he didn't want the best. But um, uh, there's a there's a, a, a part in Quarter to Midnight where the villain is doing the same thing, and he has a hefty bag, and he actually has to you know reach in and toss the the the, the body. And I kept thinking about that villain who didn't go to the trouble. They caught him because he he was careless, and you know didn't he didn't follow through on his crime. And he thought for sure the gators and all the little ponds would would do his dirty work for him, but uh, he he ended up going to prison. So <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, wait, there was a detail in the book where he had to turn the body out of the the parts out of the bag. So there you go. Sometimes life can can, can give you some crazy ideas, can it? <laughs> yeah, I, I always remembered that because I was like, oh my god, it's like right in our backyard, practically. <laughs> well, we've been chatting with Karen Rose. The new book is Quarter to Midnight. Thank you so much for your time today. I can't wait for to catch up on all the other stories of yours I haven't read yet and for all the ones that are coming down the pike. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we stick a little closer to home and feature two historical fiction books set in New York City. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.